Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. It's good to see uh, many familiar faces. Some of you I see around at different uh, places at Cairn or wherever else, but uh, it's good to be able to worship with you this morning. And of course, the, the great privilege is that we get to open the Word of God. So I'd invite you to do that now. Open to Numbers chapter 9. We're continuing in our study of Numbers, and uh, we're going to look at all of chapter 9 this evening, if you, or this morning. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. The ushers have Bibles for you. Numbers chapter 9. What I'd like to do is read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1, going through the end of Numbers 9, and then ask the Lord's blessing once again on His Word. We've asked God to bless His Word. We know He promises to do that, but we want to ask for it again. So Numbers 9, beginning in verse 1, going all the way down through verse 23. And remember, this is the Word of God. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. Those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting an offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day, at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin." If an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord uh, according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle according to the command of the Lord, 
they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We confess very openly that if you had not revealed yourself to us, we would be in the dark. We wouldn't understand ourselves. We wouldn't understand the world in which you've placed us. We wouldn't know of your son. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it this morning and that it is a, a living and active word. We thank you that your word is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for training in righteousness and that it thoroughly equips us for every good work. So, Father, what we would ask is that you would take your word by your spirit and use it to transform our thoughts and our minds, our actions. Use it to convict us of sin. Use it to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, I understand you've been studying the book of Numbers for uh, a few weeks now. And uh, so you may have noticed a few things, but I want to make a couple of comments about the book of Numbers uh, that, that, again, might be reviewed, but just to refresh your memory so that it, we, it allows us to enter into Numbers 9 uh, with the right frame of, frame of reference. Uh, the first thing you probably notice when you open the book of Numbers is, despite the title, it doesn't really have many numbers in it. It's called Numbers in our English Bibles because at the beginning of the book, there's a census that's taken. Moses numbers the people. And so that's, that's where we get the title Numbers, really, because of the census, not because of the rest of the content. If you look in your, in your Hebrew Bible, if you're reading this Bible in Hebrew, as it was originally written, the title is... It's slightly different. The title there is actually In the Wilderness. And that's, that's a, that gives a better sense of what the book is about. It's, it's about these episodes in the wilderness after Israel has been brought out from slavery in Egypt and, and they're being guided by God ultimately to the point where they're going to reach the promised land. It's about the Lord's instructions to them in the wilderness. It's about the Lord's provision for them in the wilderness. It's about their disobedience in the wilderness. It's about the ways in which the Lord guides them in and through the wilderness. There's something else that we need to know when we come to Numbers 9, in addition to the overall setting of the book and kind of where it takes place. And, and that's this. We, you have to recognize that in the book of Numbers, and you've probably picked up on this already, and not everything is in exact chronological order. In other words, in other words the book isn't telling us a straightforward story, this followed that, 
uh, you have to piece it together a little bit differently. And, and you can see this actually from verse 1. If you look at verse 1 of Numbers chapter 9, it says, Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. And then it progresses from there. And if you look back in the book, in the earlier chapters, you realize that there are some things that happened after the first month of the second year that we've already had described to us. Uh, so we know that the purpose of this isn't strictly just to give us a chronological, sequential uh, account of what happened to the Israelites. You can see another indication of this actually in verse 15. In verse 15, it takes us even further back and then sort of gives us a survey of things that have happened. In verse 15, it says, Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle. And then it goes on to show how God used the cloud to guide the people since the day the tabernacle was set up. But it's important to know that this isn't necessarily sequential at every point. And the reason why it's important is because it causes us to ask slightly different questions. The question we should be asking when we come to Numbers 9 is a question really about the themes that it introduces. In other words, Numbers is arranged thematically. It's, it's, it's arranged to give us sort of theological teaching about who God is. And that it does in a very organized and systematic way. And this chapter is going to give us some very clear teaching about who God is and about who the Israelites are and about how it is that God and his people are supposed to interact with each other. It's a, it's a thematic chapter. It's not so much trying to follow right after Numbers chapter 8 in sequence. And so then the question we have to ask ourselves when we come to Numbers 9 is, what is it teaching us about God? And what we find is that whatever it's teaching us about God, it's teaching us by showing us his actions. Actually, this is often how you learn about people, isn't it? You, know, you can look at a resume, someone's resume, and that might tell you something about them, but doesn't tell you very much. You, you have to meet them. You, you spend time with them. You, you watch them with other people. You, you, you see how they engage with you. You see how they engage with, with others. You, you maybe talk to someone on the phone who's known them for a long time. And that's how you start to get a sense for who a person is. Not so much by a list of characteristics that they might put on a piece of paper, but rather through observing them in action. And that's, that's the way the Bible presents God to us oftentimes. It shows us what he did. And in showing us what he did, it tells us who he is. And we get to know him and understand him and worship him with more clarity. And so that's what Numbers 9 is doing. It's going to show us in, in a few different scenarios how God acts with his people. And from that, we can start to derive certain truths about them. Now, now, there are sort of three scenes in Numbers chapter 9, and maybe you notice this. There are three scenes. The first scene really is, is just very, very quick. It, it's in verses 1 through 5. And, and then the second scene is related to the first one. There's a problem that arises in the first one. And so the, the second scene goes from verses 6 all the way down to verse 14, and then there's a third scene 
beginning in verse 15 and going through the rest of the chapter. And in each of these scenes, we see God engaging with the people and we learn who this God is, this God of the Bible, this God who guides his people in the wilderness. Now let's look at this first scene. What do we see about the Lord? Well, the first thing I would argue that we see about the Lord in verses 1 through 5 is simply this. We see God's kindness, his grace on full display. And why do I say that? Well, look at verse 1. Verse 1 says they're in the wilderness, and it's the first month of the second year after they'd come out. And, and immediately, if you're, if you're paying attention to the story, and if you, were, if you were tracking all the way from the book of Exodus through Numbers, you'd say, oh, if it's the first month of the second year, they should be celebrating the Passover. And look at what God does in verse 2. God speaks to Moses and, as it were, reminds the people of their obligation to celebrate the Passover. It's a really gracious thing. In other words, what God doesn't do is he doesn't say, well, I gave them that command a year ago. I told them to do it perpetually. I told them to celebrate year after year on a specific date. And so it's up to them to keep those commands, to keep those rules. He, he actually doesn't do that. He could have done that, but he doesn't. What does he do instead? Well, well, he actually speaks to Moses. He, he reminds Moses. He he reminds the people, he's, we remember we sang, he's a good, good father, and he acts like a good father might. He, he sort of says, now remember, it's, it's the first month of the second year, and you need to celebrate this Passover as I commanded you. He gives even a specific reminder. He tells them, here's when you're supposed to do it, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight. Now, now, this is a remarkable truth about the Lord. It's actually something that we see from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God doesn't just save his people, although, thank God, he does save his people. He didn't just save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, bring them through the Red Sea, set them in the wilderness, and then sort of leave them there. You know, maybe having given them a set of commands. No, no, no. He's given them these commands. These are good commands. And he's, and he's reminding them of their obligation to keep these commands. It's like a teacher who's reminding his students, now, now remember what you have due. Remember what it is that's coming up soon. Uh, think about this carefully. We're in the first month. It's a gracious thing. It's an act of condescension on the Lord's part, to give this kind of specific word to his people. Maybe, maybe that's how the Lord has acted in his dealings with you. Maybe there have been times, I'm sure there have if you're a Christian, there have been times where through his word you've received reminders, perhaps, perhaps from the pulpit received reminders, things you knew, things you knew, but the Lord graciously drove them home again, graciously reminded you of your obligations to him, graciously reminded you of what he requires, graciously reminded you of how you're to live and how you're to engage with your family and how you're supposed to be a light in the world. This is what he's doing here for Israel. This is what he commanded them to do to, to celebrate their redemption from slavery to sin. And, and, and he's telling them, now just remember the time is coming. But, 
But there's something else in these first five verses. It's not just the grace and kindness of God, although that's really pronounced from the beginning. It's also the, the specificity, the, the precision with which the Lord expects his people to obey his commands. Did you see this in, in verse 2 and verse 3 in particular? Uh, Let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all the statutes and according to all its ordinances. In other words, while God is gracious in reminding his people of their obligations to him, he also, he also is very specific about what they're supposed to do. Very careful, very precise. It's at the appointed time. It's according to all the statutes and ordinances. See, this is another truth that we need to remember with the God of the Bible. Gracious God, compassionate God, a kind father to his children, but but a God who gives commands to his people. And a God who expects that his people will pay close attention to his commands. That his people will care about his word. That his people will keep his word and obey his word down to the very precise details. Wonder what kind of care you take with the word of God. Something you think about? Make decisions and live your life Wake up in the morning, are you thinking about, what does God's word have to say for this situation? Well, God expects that his people will do that. That's what he he has for his children. That that we have the word of God and we, we keep the word of God. We observe it carefully. We obey it with the precision that it demands. But what about this second part? Well, in the second part, I would argue that we see these things emphasized even more, these same characteristics, both the kindness of God on the one hand and and the the precision with which he demands his people to keep his commands. Look at what happens in verse 6. In verse 6, there's this, this scenario. Because God's issued this gracious reminder to the people about celebrating the Passover, now there, there's a problem. And the problem is that some people come to Moses having received this reminder, having been told that this is what they're supposed to do, and they say, Though we are unclean because of a dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at the appointed time among the sons of Israel? Now, we need a little background information at this point. If you look back earlier in Numbers, or if you look in the book of Leviticus, or if you look in the book of Exodus, it's mentioned a few times, if someone has had contact with a dead person, they are ritually unclean. That's the way it worked in the tabernacle system under which they're operating. And if you're ritually unclean, that means you can't participate in the, in the, various, fe- in the various feasts and, and sacrifices. And so, and so these men get this reminder from God, And then they come to Moses and they say, hold on a minute, we have had contact with a dead person, probably some kind of accidental contact, maybe someone died in their family and they they couldn't avoid it, but they, they were in proximity to this dead body. And they say, there must be a way, surely there's a way, we would like to celebrate the Passover as well, but but we're ritually unclean. 
Now, now look at what Moses does. We're going, to, we're going to see how the Lord responds to this in a moment. That's, that's our main focus. But, but, but look at what Moses does for a moment. Look at Moses in verse 8. Moses said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. If you sort of pull the thread of verse 8 through the rest of the Bible, you see that what Moses does here is exactly what the leaders of God's people are supposed to do. What does the Apostle Paul say when he's speaking with Timothy? He says, uh, be diligent to present yourself as one approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And then he says this, correctly handling the word of truth. When Paul describes what it means to be a, a, a pastor, to be in any kind of leadership within the church, he, he describes it this way in 1 Timothy 4, that, that Timothy and anyone who aspires to that kind of leadership needs to be constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. And it's not just leaders either in the New Testament. It's also everyone who names the name of Christ. There's this great story in Acts chapter 17. Maybe you've read it. It's about Paul's time with the church in Berea. Berea is this little area in northern Greece. And, and Paul's with this Berean church. And, and it says this. It says that the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, what are God's people supposed to do when faced with a question? What are leaders in the church supposed to do when faced with a question? Look to the word of God. What does God's word say? Moses does that here. He, he waits and, and he needs God's word in order to make a judgment. Moses could have done something very different. He could have said, well, I've just seen how gracious God is. He gave us this reminder. So surely if he gave us this reminder and God's a gracious God and a merciful God, a kind God, then, then probably it's fine just to go ahead and, and, and celebrate the Passover even though you're ritually unclean. Or, or, or Moses, on the other hand, could have said, well, I'm not certain, so, so in fact, I'm going to have to say no. Uh, this, is, this is something that disqualifies you from, from celebrating. But Moses, Moses doesn't do that. He, Moses wants to know what's God's word on the matter. What has God said? And, and, and we do this in a different way, of course, than Moses did. We're not waiting for an audible voice from heaven. We're looking into the scriptures as Paul tells good church leaders to do, as Paul tells good Christians to do like those in Berea. Search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are true. So, that's Moses, but what about the Lord? What do we learn about him? Well, we see the same things here that we saw at the beginning. We see God's abundant kindness 
to his people. Look at what he says in verse 10. It's amazing. Speak to the sons of Israel saying, if any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, they didn't even ask about that, but God's anticipating another problem that might arise and in fact does arise later in Israel's history. If they're unclean because of a dead person or if they're on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover of the Lord. What grace, what kindness God shows. These people had accidentally become unclean or later on we'll find in the time of Hezekiah, these people are away on a journey and he says, you can still celebrate the Passover to me. But, but look again at the precision of his commands. You can do it. One month later, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it till morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. And then, of course, if someone ignores even this, the Lord says their sin is on their own heads. But do you see how the Lord's engaging with his people again? Abundant kindness, abundant grace, and yet, and yet clear teaching that he expects to be followed. Some of us, I think, accent one of these things over the other. Teaching about God's kindness or this clear teaching, this need for obedience. But recognize in Numbers 9, both of these things are true. God is a gracious God. God is a kind God. God is a God who expects obedience from his people. God is a God who demands that his people are studying his word to know how it is they can serve him and live their lives. We often have a very cavalier attitude toward God's word. But that, that, that option isn't open to us. That's the option of verse 14, the end of verse 14, or rather the end of verse 13. The person who, who doesn't care about the command of God, the person who doesn't care about the worship of God. And what does it say at the end of verse 13? That man will bear his sin. Terrifying. End of verse 13 for the one who presumes on the kindness of God. The scriptures say that the kindness of God is intended to bring you to repentance. The kindness of God, the mercy of God, is intended to, to draw you closer to His Word, to enable you to change whatever areas of disobedience need to be changed and live your life faithfully in accordance with the Word of God. And I have to say, too, that this... Scenario, these two scenarios in verses 1 through 14, while they apply to all of life, that they're, they're about who God is and they're about how his people are to understand him. But, but I will say this, it's worth noting that these, these two scenarios happen specifically in the context of the worship of God. We have all kinds of ideas about public worship. We have all kinds of ideas, perhaps of our own private devotion to the Lord. But again and again in the Bible, we see that God takes worship very seriously. He prescribes certain things in his word. 
Go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. You look at the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And and we all probably know that Cain murders his brother Abel. But remember what precipitated that murder. What precipitated that in Cain's mind was, was Cain very cavalierly brought an offering before the Lord. We're not even exactly sure what was wrong with it. But it was, it was an inappropriate act of worship that Cain brought before the Lord. And the Lord did not find it acceptable in his sight. And it's after that that Cain's jealousy builds and his hatred for his brother builds. And he, he goes and kills his own brother Abel. Or or if you were to look a few chapters before Numbers 9, if you were to look at the book of Leviticus, the very first day of the tabernacle, just when God's visible presence comes in, they've built it according to the specifications. It's day one. It's a glorious moment. The tabernacle is here. And what happens? Well, Aaron's sons walk in in order to offer worship before the Lord on behalf of the people, and they're struck down and killed immediately. Says strange fire was what they offered. Once again, we don't even know precisely what they did wrong, but they didn't obey the commands of God. They didn't take it very seriously. And God kills them. You go on after numbers and you look at the prophets, and again and again and again, the people of Israel are condemned by God for many things, but one of the things. One of the major things that causes them to fall under God's condemnation is their inappropriate worship. Sometimes it was because they were saying one thing in the context of public worship and living a different way outside of it. So God says, your words, your actions mean nothing to me because I know what you're doing after you leave the temple. But, but sometimes, frankly, it's because of them not being careful in the midst of their worship of God. You know, in the New Testament, we see something similar. We see, we see a, a couple in the context of worship giving an offering, and it's kind of a deceitful offering. They're lying about what they're giving, and they're doing it for show. And again, just like Nadab and Abihu, struck down, immediately killed, giving an offering to the Lord. So what do we see? We need to be very careful. The New Testament, of course, tells us many things about how we're to approach the Lord. Paul, in in Colossians, contrasts the way we're supposed to worship, and he contrasts it with with will worship, or it's sometimes translated in your Bible as self-made religion. Uh, he, He tells them how they need to regulate the use of their gifts in the context of worship. He, he tells them, give attention to the public reading of Scripture in the context of worship. He says that preaching needs to be a part, a central part of worship. He talks about singing being a part of worship, and he tells them the kinds of singing that they're supposed to be doing. He, he tells them, he gives instructions about baptism. He gives very clear instructions about the Lord's Supper and how that's to be observed and, and all the problems that accrue to this particular congregation when they're not careful in their observation of the Lord's Supper. He says that everything needs to be done decently and in an orderly way. The Bible's not silent on these matters. We think they're all matters of indifference, perhaps all matters of how we feel on the inside, but that's not what Scripture teaches us. These things matter. And what about, what about your private worship? What about your private time with the Lord? Well, 
Well, the Bible is very clear about how many privileges we have as Christians that we can, we can come before the Lord and we have this access through Jesus Christ to the Father. It's an amazing truth that we can come directly and it, and it describes our coming to the Father as approaching the throne of grace. But then what does it tell us? It tells us, approach the throne of grace. Do it repeatedly, regularly. Do it because you're approaching your heavenly father and he, he tells you to cast all his cares on him. And how many of us again say, well, these things are of little significance to me. These are things that I'll sort of dip into and out of from time to time, but not make a regular part of my life as a Christian. No, we're, we're told we need to be in prayer. We're told, to be, that we're told we need to approach God, we're told we need to cast our anxieties on Him, intercede for others. Worship matters in the Scriptures, just as Numbers 9 teaches us about the commands of God for all our life, it specifically teaches us about these commands in the context of Israel's coming to Him in regular worship. Now, what about this third scene? beginning in verse 15, going through the end of the chapter. It's a little different kind of situation. It's not about the Passover. It's about the cloud that hovers over the tabernacle and moves from place to place. What does this teach us about God? That's the question we want to ask once again in this third scene. And I would say the, the first thing that it teaches us, and perhaps really the major overarching theme that it drives home, is, is go about God's provision for his people. Once again, God doesn't simply bring the people out in the wilderness, get them through the Red Sea, drop them there, and say, now you're on your own. Some people think the Christian life is a little bit like that. Some people think, well, the Christian life is just about how it is that I have uh, my sins forgiven uh, through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and I, on my behalf and because I'm in him through faith, uh, therefore my sins are forgiven and I have hope for the future. And then everything in between is kind of this blank slate where God has very little to say, but that's never the picture of God in the Bible. The picture of God in the Bible with the nation of Israel, and with you and I today, is a picture of a God who is actively working, providing for his people, caring for them. He's called a shepherd who leads his people day by day, giving them exactly what they need for the day. This scenario that we get in Numbers 15 shows us that, that God... God didn't give his people all that they might need for the future at one moment in time. It was a daily kind of provision. It's less like an inheritance that gets put in your bank account and then you can use it at various points as you would wish day by day and more like an allowance that comes on a daily basis as needed. That's how God provides for his people Israel in the wilderness. He, he, he provides for them whatever they need that day. What did we all pray together earlier? Give us this day our, our daily bread. And if you look ahead of that in Jesus' instructions about prayer, he says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. And you see, that's how it worked with Israel and the cloud. Daily, they would look up and 
and, and the Lord would provide for them. He would, he would take them where he wanted them to go. He was providentially in control, governing all the circumstances, knowing all the circumstances, wiser than they were, stronger than they were, and taking them step by step exactly where they needed to go. We also read later on in the book of Deuteronomy that he was providing for them in other ways, not just guiding them, but it says their shoes never wore out and they had food every day. And, 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 and these people were rebellious. If you go back and look at Exodus, right after they're led through the Red Sea, what's the first thing they do? Well, they sing, they sing a kind of worship service to the Lord and then, and then they complain. And they complain and complain and complain and doubt and doubt and doubt. And actually, in a few chapters, they're going to doubt the Lord that he could even take them into the promised land. And they're judged for that. But in the midst of their sin and unfaithfulness, in the midst of their, their rejection of the Lord, their, their doubting of the Lord, he provides. He provides. He guides them day by day. That's the God of the Bible. The God who, with his children, guides them day by day. We wander, we're unfaithful, we doubt, we complain. One, up one minute, down the next. God guides his people and provides for his people. It would be a glorious story if all we had were the first 14 chapters of Exodus, you know, God gets them out. But that's not where it stops. He leads them through the wilderness. And look at this daily leading. He says, if the cloud, verse 20, if the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle according to the command of the Lord, they remained. Verse 21, if sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they'd move out. And in verse 23, it says, at the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out and kept the Lord's charge. Day by day, it wasn't clear how it was going to work. It wasn't clear if it was going to work the same way today as it worked yesterday. That's how God's provision is. But, but nonetheless, God provided. God was with his people. There's a last thing, I think, that we see through all three of these stories about the Lord. Such an important lesson that Numbers 9 teaches us. It's really, I think, in a sense, the key to the chapter, the key that holds together all these three scenes, two of them having to do with public worship and the Passover, and the third having to do with the cloud and the pillar of fire. And really, the key is in, in the use of a variety of terms to, to talk about the Lord speaking in, in verse 1, and verse 4, and verse 9, and verse 10, it says, He spoke, He spoke, He spoke, He spoke. In verses 5 and 8, it says, He commanded, He commanded. In verse 19, in verse 23, He charged. And, and then perhaps most vividly, at the end, beginning in verse 18, it uses a different idiom altogether, but it's communicating the same thing. You can't really pick this up in your English translation. Mine, in verse 18, says, at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel. Perhaps yours says the same thing. But actually, it says this, at the mouth of the Lord. As the Lord opened his mouth, they left. And it repeats that twice in verse 18. 
twice in verse 20. And then listen to verse 23. At the mouth of the Lord they camped. At the mouth of the Lord they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the mouth of the Lord through Moses. The thing we learn most of all about God in this chapter is that God is a God who gives his word. God is a God who who acts through speaking and whose people are guided and governed by his word. It starts in the very beginning of the Bible. God creates by his word. When we talk about our salvation in the New Testament, it says we were born again by the living word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. It says that we're we're governed by God's word. Jesus said, the ones who love me keep my commandments. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We talked earlier about how leadership in the church is all governed by God's word. Spiritual maturity is measured by God's word. Our our worship, of course, governed by the word of God in every particular. God is a God who has not remained silent. God is a God who has given us his word. And of course, when we're introduced to our Savior, how does John introduce him? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory. This is the God whom we worship. This is the Savior who guides us like a shepherd. And if God is a God who gives his word to his people, if God is a God whose whose very son is known as the word of God, you and I must be people of God's word. People whom God graciously leads day by day graciously teaches day by day from his living and enduring word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks in particular for this text. Make us people who love your word. Make us people who are guided by your word. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, the Word made flesh. And it is through Him and, his, and in His name that we come to you this morning asking these things. Amen. Let's stand, and as we're dismissed, I will read this blessing from just a few chapters before in Numbers chapter 6. This is the priestly blessing. And it's a way for us to go forth. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.